1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be with you again. Please do have your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians 4. Father, we praise and thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you haven't left us to grope our way back to you, but you've shown us the way in Jesus and in your word. And so we pray it this evening, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. How do we live to please God? Isaac is just learning the ropes at a factory job. Recently, a worker on the previous shift didn't do his job right, so Isaac had to pick up the slack. His co-workers were strongly pressurising him to get back at the worker. But Isaac chose to obey the Bible, not to repay evil with evil. Isaac tells with a big smile of how he walked out of work that day extremely happy, knowing that he chose what was right and he didn't have to listen to other people. Jodie talks about little decisions that she's faced with during the day when no one is watching. The importance of being honest to the penny when she's handling money at the local coffee shop where she works as a barista. Choosing to listen to a good sermon over Radio 1 on her drive to work. She knows that God wants her to use her time well and the message is much more beneficial. When you're living before God, when you're living life before God, when you're living before God, life becomes simple and you become happy, she says enthusiastically. You only have to please one and don't have to worry about pleasing everyone around you. The Apostle says here in verse 1, We instructed you how to live 
in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So the Thessalonians are a good example to us in how to please God. Paul simply says in verse 1, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord, Jesus, to do this more and more. And we could say the same about Christchurch Baldock. You, we, are pleasing God in many ways. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Notice in verse 2, Paul's understanding of his authority as an apostle. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is self-consciously aware that when he gives instructions, he does so by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Remember how he said in chapter 2 verse 13, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. So Paul's word to the Thessalonians is in fact God's word. Paul's letters are scripture. They're to be studied, trusted and obeyed. Now today, how to please God in our sexuality and how to please God in our love for one another. Firstly then, pleasing God in our sexuality. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified means holy. It is God's will that we should be holy. As we all know, there's been a sexual revolution since the 1960s. Sex has been divorced from marriage. Anything goes as long as it's consensual is the mantra of our society. And in the last 20 years, there's been a revolution concerning homosexuality. Anyone who stands up and says, sex belongs exclusively within heterosexual marriage, is not just considered old-fashioned, but now positively dangerous. Into this situation, the Word of God speaks. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Paul considers all sex outside of faithful, lifelong, heterosexual marriage to be immorality. Thessalonica was a place of great sexual immorality. Paul was writing from Corinth which was associated with the goddess Aphrodite, known by the Romans as Venus. The worship of this goddess involved the use of cultic prostitutes. Thessalonica was particularly associated with the worship of the Kabiri, minor deities, which also involved sex in worship. The theologian F.F. F. Bruce explains the sexual ethics of the Greco-Roman world. A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, 
while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. That might sound outlandish to our modern ears, but a century ago the Liberal Prime Minister David Lloyd George had a similar lifestyle. He was notorious for sleeping with the wives of other men. And eventually, while his wife kept his home in North Wales, Lloyd George kept a mistress who was his secretary in 10 Downing Street. He effectively had two wives in different locations. There's a feeling today that at least we are no longer hypocritical about sex. On Lloyd George's day, it was fine to carry on in private, as long as appearances were kept up. Now, a Prime Minister might be described as having a colourful past, and it's all out in the open. This is considered better than the pre-1960s situation. Hypocrisy is clearly wrong. But God's standards have not changed. Verse 4. Paul continues that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Our society says anything goes. God says control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. An alternative reading of this verse is each of you should learn to live with your own wife or learn to acquire a wife. Anything other than sex between a husband and a wife is immorality. This is tough for single people. Single Christians will be celibate. The pastor and writer Sam Albury says the following about singleness. We also need to remember that Jesus made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus willingly became fully human for us. He willingly became a male. He was a sexual human being, as we all are. But he lived a celibate lifestyle. He never married. He never even entered a romantic relationship. He never had sex. Jesus was not calling others to a standard he was not willing to embrace himself. He wasn't calling singles to sexual abstinence while knowing nothing of it himself. He lived this very teaching. In his book Seven Myths About Singleness, Sam Albury helps Christians, married and unmarried alike, value singleness as a gift from God. Sam explains frequently misunderstood views of singleness, why celibacy and intimacy are not mutually exclusive, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ helps singles take hold of the unique opportunities their singleness affords. He also encourages singles in the various ways they can contribute to the creation mandate without having kids themselves. He highlights ways married and singles 
can strive to better support one another in friendship and exposes some of the tender feelings singles experience when they feel like they're missing out in life and love. John Stott was another Christian leader who embraced a life of celibacy. Stott said, We shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected, both into affectionate friendships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness accompanied by acute pain sometimes, we can find joyful fulfilment in the self-giving service of God and other people. It is difficult to be single. It's also difficult to stay faithfully married in a fallen world. The point is, we should be moral. Verse 5 Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. In fact, when we give in to lust, verse 6, we are wronging or taking advantage of a potential brother or sister. If we use pornography, we're abusing the people caught up in the porn industry. If we have sex without the commitment of marriage, we're taking advantage of another person. And if that person is a Christian, we're taking advantage of a brother or a sister. Verse 6b The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Here is Paul's understanding of apostolic authority again. Paul, as the apostle, speaks for God. Anyone who rejects his teaching rejects God, not man the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This means that sexual ethics are not secondary issues like the fact that Christians disagree over baptism or church government. Those are secondary issues where Christians may disagree but continue in fellowship together. Sexual ethics are primary issues because verse 8 Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God gives his Holy Spirit to all believers in Christ so that we will live holy lives. When we reject the Apostle's teaching 
about sexuality, we're rejecting God himself. This makes sexual ethics a salvation issue. There was a bishop who criticised preachers like me for being obsessed with sex. Surely, as long as we believe the main tenets of the faith, God doesn't mind what we do in private as consenting adults. Well, no, God does care who we sleep with. And the reason he cares is that marriage points to something bigger than itself. The Bible teaches that marriage illustrates the union between Jesus and his bride, the church. Christopher Ashe, who is written on marriage, says, God loves his people passionately and he calls on them to love him with an equally devoted and single-hearted love in return. It is an intense and passionate love, more passionate on God's side than any human marriage. The best and deepest sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is only a pale echo of the passionate devotion of God for his people. So God calls us to keep sex for marriage because this is a picture of the exclusive, passionate love that God has for his people. Anything less than the lifelong exclusive union of marriage is not a safe place for a sexual relationship because if a pregnancy ensues there needs to be a home of security for the child to grow up in. And sex is like glue in a relationship. It's a very good thing within marriage. God is not a killjoy. Sex sticks us together with the person we're sleeping with. If that relationship just comes to an end, there is inevitably great hurt. So where do we need to repent? Jesus made the standard of sexual holiness not just committing sexual acts, but even looking lustfully at someone to whom we're not married. I'm very aware when we look at a subject like this that all of us have fallen short of God's standard and some of us have been greatly hurt. God wants us to know that he loves us and therefore he calls us to come out of the darkness into the light, to bring all our, our needs and brokenness to him, to find forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to pay for all our sin, that we might be completely forgiven and made right with God. So shall we repent together and commit ourselves to living by God's standard, pleasing God in our sexuality, and secondly, pleasing God in our love for one another. Verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 
So Paul is pleased with the Thessalonians for the way they are obeying his teaching and loving one another. Here is Paul's apostolic authority again. As Paul teaches them, God teaches them to love each other. Verse 10. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. So Paul's instruction to them is, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. There is, in fact, great love for one another in Christchurch. When people are ill or babies are born, the church rallies round, meals are cooked, gifts are given. So all Paul would say to us is, do so more and more. There should be a quality of love for one another in the church that you do not find in the world. When I was depressed many years ago in a previous church, the GP said to me, what have you got to be unhappy about? You work among the nicest people in the town. It was great that her perception of Christians was that they're the nicest people in the town. That's a great thing. So love one another more and more. And verse 11, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. The issue here might be the same as in 2 Thessalonians 3, that the return of Christ was expected imminently, and so some people had given up work. There seemed no point in work if Jesus was going to come back immediately. However, God is patient. He's not sending the return of Christ until many more have come to faith in Christ. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 8 and following, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God has delayed the return of Jesus to give many more the opportunity to come to repentance. And therefore, those who are refusing to work are making a big mistake. And Paul has to say in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, the one who is not willing to work shall not eat. In fact, those who are unwilling to work become a burden on the other Christians, which is a failure of love. Therefore, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. This doesn't mean that all intellectual work is wrong. Some groups, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, teach that it's wrong for God's people to be in professions, because Paul says, work with your hands. But clearly, the point is that we should work. Some people are gifted to work with their hands, like carpenters or builders. 
Others are not such practical people, and they will work in other ways. They could be lawyers or accountants, and they work with their minds. The point is that they work. Paul is also not criticising those who want to work but can't find work at the present time. Unemployment is a terrible experience. Paul is not criticising the unwillingly unemployed. Paul is challenging the lazy. Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul is very aware that the non-Christian world watches Christians. They watch to see if our lives match up to our preaching. It's essential that our lives are worthy of respect. There have been several damaging scandals in the Christian church in recent times. This is so unfortunate. We must do all we can to win the respect of non-Christians. And being self-sufficient, earning our own living, is an important part of this. And loving one another is central. The failure of many Christians to do this has given many people an excuse not to follow Christ. In John 13.35 Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So are we living to please God? Are our lives moral and holy? Do we love one another? Shall we come back to the cross for forgiveness and a fresh start? Let's pray together. Father, we're all challenged by your word in different ways. Please show us where our lives are less than moral and holy. Please show us where we can love one another more and more. Please help us, Lord, to live lives which please you. Please forgive us for our sins. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross and paid for all our sin. Thank you that he gives us complete forgiveness and a fresh start. Fill us afresh with your spirit now then, Lord, we pray. And enable us to live for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.